Everybody, I have been having a blast watching you all have a blast. It's been great to watch you enjoy the mountains here and each other, and I am grateful for some of the conversations I've been able to have with all of you, with, with some of you, and just hear how God's working in your lives, and hear how He's helping you think about what life is really all about. I can remember, really, I can remember being your age and feeling immortal. I think I mentioned last night that I was... I was the guy among my friends who did the kind of crazy stuff. I, I think I actually theoretically knew I could die, but I don't think I really believed it. I really think I felt immortal. I felt like I, I couldn't be hurt even uh, in, a, in a serious way, although I ended up getting hurt quite a bit. But, but it's hard at your age to really think about your death and think about time moving on because it can be haunting. I, I don't like ticking clocks. <laughs> and for years, I've wondered why. I take the batteries out of clocks that tick when I'm trying to study or it's quiet or I'm trying to sleep. And I really think the reason I, I don't like ticking clocks is because they remind me that time is passing and there's nothing I can do to keep that from happening. Uh, time moving on is one of those things that makes you realize you are not in control. Billy Graham was asked one time what surprised him most about life, and this great evangelist said, the thing that surprised me most about life was its brevity. In other words, how fast it went. Life went so quickly. And the older you get, ask anybody who's, who's older, time seems to go faster. There's lots of ways to think about time. There are fancy philosophical definitions of time, and there is something called psychological time, how fast time feels to be going. People say, man, this class is really going slow. Well, not really. Time is really the way we think about it and set our clocks to just the measurement of the solar system. Time's an interesting concept, and it's something that can haunt you if you really think about it. And our passage tonight in Ecclesiastes 3 is about time. And in The Lord of the Rings, there's this wonderful poem that Gollum recites for us. It's a riddle, and I've, I've given it away. I shouldn't have done it, but it's about time. And here's Gollum's riddle. This thing all things devours, birds, beasts, trees, flowers, gnaws iron, bites steel, grinds hard, stones to meal. Slays kings, ruins towns, and beats high mountains down. This thing is time. If you've ever walked around the lake, there's a, there's a bridge you cross when you get down to the cove. And if you look at the rock formations, there's an amazing circle that's in one of the rocks that the water goes over. And every time I would bring one of my young kids out there, they'd say, Daddy, who made that circle there? And I said, well, God did, and what he used to make it is water. And I had the hardest time convincing them that water could ever carve a beautiful, deep circle in rock. But what you have to understand is time allows that kind of thing to happen. Time's a powerful thing, and when we, when we stop and think about it, it can be overwhelming. It can be hard to really ponder. If you really think about time, 
It's amazing people celebrate New Year's Eve. You know, I, I watch people, I mentioned this last night, celebrate New Year's Eve, and it's always amazing to me. What exactly is everybody happy about? It is, like I said, another year gone by, one year closer to death. And, and we've been trying to stop long enough this weekend to think about what life is all about, what the meaning of life really is. And I don't know how you would have answered that question when you came in, but at the very least, I hope every one of us is asking that question seriously for us, not just with some words we might just spit out, but what we really believe the meaning of life is based upon how we live our lives. That's how you tell what you really think. Whether you're a Christian, whether you came here knowing you're not a Christian, thinking about what life is about is what we're challenged to do by this book. And, and so many ways out of this are prevalent in our day. Peter Kreeft, K-R-E-E-F-T, wrote a great book about Ecclesiastes, as well as Song of Solomon and Job. And, and in it, he talks about ways to hide the elephant, he says. You know, you've heard the expression elephant in the living room. Well, the elephant in the living room that you can't ignore, but you try anyway, is the question of what life is all about. And what Peter Crave says in his book is there are some ways we try to hide the elephant, act like the big question of what meaning, mean, the meaning of life is, is about. And the first one is diversion. We get so busy and so distracted that we don't think about it. The second one is what he calls propaganda. In other words, we, we say nasty things about the big questions of life. We, we call them things like abstract or impractical or religious and not about real life. We, we call them bad names and we try to act like they're for people who don't really get on with the important things of life. We, we're indifferent. We yawn, Crave says. We yawn about God and meaning and death and and. These, these elephants we just keep yawning at, and we're dispassionate, we're apathetic. Now, we're passionate about things like money, sex, ambition, entertainment, video games, things that really capture us, the celebrities that capture our attention for a time. And I don't know if you've ever heard the expression about Americans. Americans, we work at our play. In other words, we, we sort of arrange our lives to get to play on the weekend and, and do all these things. We work at our play, we worship our work, and we play at our worship. We don't take worship very seriously typically in the United States, but we tend to make an idol, a god out of our work, and we work hard to play. And, and we've got disordered loves and passions. And then Crave says the pursuit of happiness. Just happiness, however you define that, usually in a superficial way, is another way we try to hide the elephant of the meaning of life. Listen to this quote by Peter Crave. He says, um, the pursuit of happiness, which our American Declaration of Independence calls one of our great inalienable rights, in which Malcolm Muggeridge called one of the silliest ideas ever propagated, hides the elephant because the elephant does not seem to make us happy. The elephant is negative. And we should practice the power of positive thinking. I'm okay, you're okay, and self-acceptance. We should cry, peace, peace, when there is no peace, because it makes us happy. 
Yes, Virginia, there is a Santa Claus. In no, Virginia, people don't die. They just pass away. In no, Virginia, all religious educators agree that the biblical fear of the Lord is not the beginning of wisdom, but a dangerous superstition that must be eradicated from the minds of the young, lest they become something other than well-adjusted citizens of the kingdom of this world. That's powerful. We, we can pursue a kind of happiness that makes our lives empty, meaningless, shallow, superficial. And, and the last one he talks about is what he calls subjectivism. You, you ask the question, what's life all about? And then you say, well, you get to make that up. You decide for yourself. You live your truth. And it may be completely different than someone else's truth, but isn't that cool? We all have different truths. Well, is that really meaning? If it just comes from each individual opinion about what meaning and purpose really is? We don't make up our own meaning. Qualifying the word truth with the word your completely redefines the word truth and meaning for that matter. It's got to be something beyond just my opinion at the moment. But all those ways of hiding the elephant are right if there's no God and if God hasn't told us what's true. But there is a God and he has told us what's true. And so our passage tonight is about time, and I want to read it to you, and please listen to this beautiful poem. You've probably heard it, even if you've never read the Bible. It's quite a famous poem. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 starts this way. Help us, Lord, as we go to your word now to hear from you, change our hearts, bring us to our knees and our minds and hearts before you and before your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Here's what the preacher says. There's a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to uproot. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to tear down and a time to build. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to scatter stones and a time to gather them. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to search and a time to give up. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear and a time to mend. A time to be silent and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. What do workers gain from their toil? I have seen the burden of God has laid upon the human race. He's made everything beautiful in its time. He's also set eternity in the human heart. No one can fathom what God has done from the beginning to the end. Beautiful poem to begin with. John F. Kennedy was planning to recite that poem in the beginning of a speech he was about to give, but he never got to give the speech because on that day he was assassinated. His purpose in quoting that poem, even though he never got to, was going to be to help people think about living wisely. But that's not actually the purpose of this poem in Ecclesiastes. It's a beautiful poem, and it describes the way life is in many ways. But the purpose of the poem is not to just be beautiful and help you think about how to live wisely, how to figure out which time you're in. 
The purpose of the poem is to give you the impression that time just keeps marching on and events keep coming and going and you're not in charge of any of it. And you can't stop time from progressing. You're not in charge of it. And so it should be a poem that makes you want something outside of just life under the sun. We try to control time. We get day timers, right? Most of them are digital now in some way. We, we, we put all our things on our calendar. My son went through high school, and he, he always was kind of proud that he just always kept everything in his head. Now that he started college, the first week he went and got a day timer. And he's writing down all his assignments. It's a little more intense now, and it's more on him to make sure everything gets done. And so, so he's on it, and he's got a day timer, and he's trying to manage his time and control his time. We try to define it. Listen to his fancy definition of time. Time is the dimension of change, a fact which distinguishes it from the three dimensions of space. Oh, there you go. Now we've got it figured out. We have clocks on our phones and Less and less on our wrists like this old guy does. We've got clocks back there. We've, we, tr we try to manage it by, by having clocks and timers. And time can make us feel pressured. You ever struggle not having enough time? There are most days I feel like time is my, my resource I, I need the most and I have the least. And so, so time can crush you if you don't get outside of it in some way. Technology seems to help, but in some ways it makes things worse. The expectations increase the faster things get. We need a new iPhone every year when they come out with a new one because it's going to be faster than the other one, even though the other one was faster than people just 10 years ago could have ever imagined, two years ago could have ever imagined. And time goes slower when you're younger. I remember when I was a little kid, I don't know how old I was. I hadn't even started school yet, but my brother went to school. And, and I remember my mother telling me that summer was only three months. And, and we went to school the rest of the year, and it was really upsetting to me. I thought, as a little kid, a three-year-old, that we, we had a year at school, my, my brother, and then we had a year off, and we called it summer. And as soon as my mother told me that summer was only three months, it was really upsetting to me, and I remember experiencing summer completely differently the rest of my life. Summer went so much faster once I got out of my little three-year-old perspective. And time can feel that way. The seasons come and the seasons go. Now, it's important to think about time the way the Bible does. A lot of people, a lot of Eastern religions, these philosophers called the Stoics that had a big influence on the way people in the Western world thought, it, it was cyclical. It, it just never ended. It just kept going, like Ecclesiastes in that poem. It's just a never-ending cycle. In Eastern religions that I hear thrown around a lot these days actually gives you a way of thinking that crushes you when you think about time crushes you because if, if it never ends, if it's just one cycle after another, and I'm just caught up in this, and, and the Lion King song I quoted a couple nights ago, that's what it teaches. It's the circle of life, and that's supposed to bring you comfort, right? The little kid, the little, uh, little kid asks a question, kid, a lion asks a question, and, and says, what happens when I die? And the big comforting thought is, oh, it's the circle of life. You die, you go in the ground, 
You basically enable grass to grow when you go in the ground, and then another animal comes along and eats it so it can live. And it's the circle of life. Isn't that great? No. No. You're telling me the ultimate destination for my life is to be fertilizer? Is to be manure? Is to be dead, something dead that enables other things to grow? The circle, and they sing it all happy, and I want to scream, no! I need a better answer than that, than the circle of life, right? And so it's so important to realize that in the word karma, you know, like instant karma, we love watching those instant karma videos on, on, on the internet when people do something bad or wrong or rude and they immediately get punished for it in some way. And like, ah, karma. Ah, it's karma. There are even expressions about karma people use when they see that happen, right? But, well, and I appreciate the desire to see justice come to pass. That's why movies like The Equalizer are, are still making money all over the place, right? We like justice. We want justice. But this idea of karma, that, that it just keeps going, you know? You pay for your sins. If you got to come back, you got to do a little better next time. If you don't, come back in a lesser life and karma comes and gets you. Isn't that karma? No, it's not. Because God is sovereign. See, the Bible views history as linear. It's not cyclical. It's linear. This is what the Bible says. It is appointed a man once to die and then to face the judgment. Now, that gives great dignity to the human experience and the human existence because God really thinks the way we live our lives matters. And he's the judge of all the earth, and God has spoken. One, one man has said, time is just another word for death. And if that's all there is, death makes life meaningless. And we're supposed to feel the sting of this. If you read Romans 8, death is supposed to be a gut punch. Death is supposed to be something that wakes you up out of your lethargy and your stupor, satisfied with just life under the sun. It's really a gift to wake us up. I have an acquaintance whose father was in a convalescent home as his father was dying, and he would go in this place, and everybody in there was dying, and it was horrible. It was just horrible. The, the, the pain and the anguish and, and just the survival and some people just wishing they could have died already. And he said there was a mural in this convalescent center and he hated it. He, he wanted to take a spray can and spray paint and spray over it because you know what it said? It, it was trying to hide the elephant. It said, the sunset is just as beautiful as the sunrise. And he'd look around and he'd say, this is not beautiful. This is painful. This is gut-wrenching. People are dying in here. And if we just try to make it just natural and normal when it isn't, we're not going to get the wake-up call that the passage of time and death at the end of it all is supposed to give us. But the great news is there is a God, and he has spoken, and our lives really matter, and there's a way out of the never-ending cycle. There's a way out of the death that's coming. And it's through God's Son. Time is indeed fleeting, and it is beyond our control. So what are we going to do about it? Our work can seem so futile, as Ecclesiastes says in this chapter. 
He says, I've seen the burden God has laid on the human race. And again, if you read Genesis 3 and Romans 8, it talks about the curse. When Adam and Eve rebelled against God and said, no, we're going to live lives our own way. In other words, under the sun. We're going to call our own shots. We're not going to fear the Lord. We're going to determine the difference between good and evil and eat of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we're going to run our lives our way as our own gods. That's the problem of humanity at its core. And God loves us too much to let us run down that road. And so he brings judgment and a curse in the garden. And Romans 8 says that curse in Genesis 3 is life in this world where work is filled with thorns and thistles and sweat of the brow and pain in childbirth, as it says in Genesis 3. And it's the groaning of life in a fallen world. And there's grace in that. See, Ecclesiastes is describing a cursed world. It's describing a world that God has constructed in a way where we should never be satisfied with just life in this world, making as if this is our only life and, and our only world. And that's why Jesus has store up treasures in heaven where wrath and, uh, moth and rust don't destroy and thieves don't break in and steal. Live life for what really lasts, and tomorrow morning we'll talk about what that looks like. But the first thing we've got to do is be saved out of this world by being saved from ourselves, saved from our own sin. And the good news is, is God, as he says in, in verse 11, God has put eternity in our hearts. You know, it's amazing. Even people who claim to be atheists, I don't ever say somebody's an atheist. I got family members who say they're atheists. And I went to a big state university. I had never had one Christian professor. I never had one theist professor, one that believed in God. I had a couple agnostics. The rest said, there is no God. And so I've known a lot of atheists in my life. But you know, when, when you really push them, atheists admit that they pray. Makes absolutely no sense, and they admit that too. Like when they get in trouble, or, or they're, they're driving their car and they start spinning around on ice, they cry out to God to save them and help them, protect them. They can't help it. It's an instinct built into our hearts. How do you explain that? It's been said that human beings are incurably religious. That we have an instinct to worship. We all know that there's something beyond us that deserves our worship. And that we have to answer to. You know, I have a, a family member who says he's an atheist and he's very oppositional to my Christian faith. And it's been decades that we've been having conversations. And he's always got a smart aleck response to everything I say. He's got a quick wit. I love him. But man, he is hard-hearted and stubborn. And there were just a couple times that I said something to him about my beliefs as a Christian that he didn't have a smart comeback. One of the times, we were in a canoe in Maine on a lake on a beautiful, clear night. The stars in Maine were incredible that night. And we were sitting there, and, and I really respect this guy. He loves quiet. Right? And so we just sat there probably for 15 or 20 minutes just in the quiet looking at these stars, sitting in a canoe in Maine, just occasionally hearing a loon. You ever hear a loon? They're amazing. And we were sitting there. And, and I, I looked at him, and after about 20 minutes, and I said, would you tell me something? What's it like to experience this and feel the need to worship and have no idea what to do with that? So one of the only times he ever just sat there and didn't say anything, 
because he knew I had nailed him. He knew it. He knew that's exact. He didn't know what to do with all these feelings of worship. We're created to worship. And, and God has set eternity in our hearts. And so instead of living life under the sun, we need to realize what Augustine says, as I'm sure he's thinking about this passage in Ecclesiastes. He says, you've made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Listen to C.S. Lewis put it. Listen, most people, if they really learned it, if they really learn to look into their own hearts, would know they, that they do want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give, you, give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love or first think of some foreign country or first take up some subject that excites us are longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can really satisfy. And then he says this, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the probable explanation is that I was made for another world. That's so true. And deep down, we know that. We know, and we're terrified, but we try to ignore the fact that it would be terrifying if this is all there was. I want an answer to the meaning of life. I want an answer. I want a solution to the problem of death. Here's the solution. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This word here is this word lagos, and, and for centuries, thinkers in the Greek world had thought about, what, what is this thing that, that makes sense of everything? It seems like there's an order to life. It seems that there are things that make sense, that there's something called logic and reasoning, and, and things make sense, and then there's chaos, and how do you explain this, this order we recognize in the world? And here comes the apostle John telling him what it is. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything that was made. In Him was life, and life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. What makes sense of the world is a person, and that person is God, and he talks about God becoming one of us. In Jesus, the Son, the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who's at the Father's side, has made him known. He's saying you can make sense of the world when the God who made the world tells us what the word, what world is about. And the world is defined by God, the Creator. And we understand what makes sense when the Word becomes flesh and becomes one of us. Here's the answer. Here's what makes sense of the world more than anything else. For God so loved the world, even the world that hated him. For God so loved the world that he gave. That's what love does. It gives. You know, it's been said that you can give without loving. But you can't love without giving. Love is self-sacrificial. Not just sentimentality. And God so loved the world, the world that hated him, that he gave. He gave his own son that whoever believes in him will never die. You won't perish. You'll have eternal life. 
then you'll have the meaning of life. You'll have everything your deepest heart desires, longs for. In Jesus, the Son, he's the answer. He's the one who makes sense of the world. He's the one who enables us to stand on judgment day forgiven and righteous in the sight of God. As children of God by faith in the Son. We talked about sin last night. And if we can own our sin, and as I know some of you did last night, really own our sin and not make excuses and explain it away and blame people and minimize it and, and trivialize it and just dismiss it. If we can really own our sin and turn from that sin in what the Bible calls repentance and trust Jesus alone, he brings life. He brings the sense of life we all desperately need. He frees our hearts as now children of God and new creatures in Christ to worship God from hearts set free. That's who he is for us. I wouldn't want you to spend one more day of your life if you've never trusted Jesus. He's the one we desperately need to save us from our sin. Listen to John 14:6. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. We get broken out of this cycle that time just marches on and will crush us if we don't find a way out. And Jesus gives us the way out. Jesus provides what we desperately need for him to provide. An answer to the problems because we've got to get to the point where we say, look, I don't understand it all, Lord. And life still is, is hard for me to understand at times. And I don't understand a lot of things in the Bible. But what I've come to see is Jesus is who he says he is. He's the way, the truth, and the life. And I know I need him. I know I need him to be who God created me to be. I know I need him to be forgiven and set free from my sin. And he does that. And he loves to forgive. Jesus loves to forgive. He doesn't forgive begrudgingly or expecting anything in return. The glory of the gospel is that Jesus paid it all. He did it all. There's nothing left for us to do. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. That's the message of the gospel. And that means we are freed up from the cycles of this life, from the questions we can't answer because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And he provides for us everything we need, which means we can be freed to live. Nothing left to prove. Nothing left to earn. Nothing left to demonstrate that we're worthy because we're not. But Jesus makes us worthy because by faith in him, he changes everything. That's who he is for us. He gives us life abundant in this life and eternal with God. And in some ways, it couldn't be more simple. You say no to self and self-righteousness and self-determination and being your own God. And you say, no, I want to worship the true God. And I want to do it the way he says it has to be done, which is through his son, who alone brings eternal life. That's who he is for us. And I would hate for any of you, and I've been praying that no one would leave this mountain without a relationship with God through Jesus. And so without any manipulation or drama or anything, I want to give you an opportunity. If, you've never, if you're not sure that you've really turned from your sin and trusted Jesus in a new saving relationship, I want to give you an opportunity to do that tonight. The Bible says, if, if, if God is working your heart, don't harden it. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. 
And if God is working in your heart and life, this is a sacred moment for you. And the Christian life is very personal, but it's never been private. We're supposed to declare our faith from the rooftops. I was just able to baptize a young lady in our church Sunday night along with others who are being baptized and rejoice that she publicly said, I have trusted Jesus and Jesus alone for my salvation. And so I baptized her. The Christian life is private, it is public, but it's never been private. So a great way to start your life as a Christian is in public. Because you're going to live the rest of your life publicly as a Christian, not privately in, your, in a little corner. And so this is an amazing opportunity, an amazing place to do that. This is the most friendly audience you'll ever have to declare your faith in Jesus. We've got to go out in a world and tell people who hate Jesus that we love him. And so this is a great place to start a relationship with the Lord. And so if this weekend you've been thinking, you know what? I've just been a religious person. I've just been a moral person. Or I've just been a rebellious person. I just came because my friends who are Christians asked me to come and it sounded fun. And if that's you, if you're not sure, absolutely sure, that tonight you have a relationship with God through Jesus because you've turned from your sin and you've trusted him in saving faith, I just want to give you an opportunity to do that now so I can pray for you. So if that's you, would you please stand now so I can pray for you? Anybody? Just stay standing so I can pray for you. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for these dear ones who've stood and said, I want to trust Jesus and follow him. I want to be forgiven. I want to be declared righteous. I want to be adopted into his family. And I want to walk with him, finding abundant life and answers that only he can provide. And so, Lord, I thank you for them. I thank you for their courage. I thank you for their faith. And, Lord, I'm confident that because they started this way, they'll continue this way with a confident boldness, knowing that Jesus is worth our witness and worth our testimony. And Lord, I pray your protection. Satan hates what's happening tonight, and he's going to move in and try to knock these, these young ones off their moorings. And so, Lord, I pray that you'd help them get anchored, help them get in a word. I, I pray that they dive into fellowship and depend on others to grow in their Christian faith. I pray that they would develop a prayer life and a life of worship privately and corporately. Lord, I thank you for what you're doing. And I pray that there would be a long-haul faithfulness that starts tonight and that there would be many, many others who come to saving faith in you because of the witness of these dear ones. And so we commit them to you, grateful and in Jesus' name, amen.